0: Hey, I'm Corey, And I'm Lori. And this is the Nourish Circle Podcast.
1: Join the band as we gather in our Nourish Circle and talk all things weight-inclusive, haze, non-diet, and whatever else is nourishing us. Today's episode is brought to you by our Join the Band Teespring store. Click the link in our show notes to check out our badass
0: non-diet dietitian merchandise. Today on the Nourish Circle podcast, we have Sonali Rashatwar, who is an award-winning clinical social worker, sex therapist, adjunct lecturer, and grassroots organizer. Based in Philly, she is a super fat, queer, bisexual, non-binary therapist and co-owner of Radical Therapy Center, specialized in treating sexual trauma. Body image issues, racial or immigrant identity issues, and South Asian family systems while offering fat and body positive sexual, sexual health care. We were so excited to have this conversation and we really, really hope you enjoy too.
1: Hello, Sanali. Thank you so much for being part of the Nurse Circle podcast. Lori and I are so excited to have you with us today.
2: I am so excited to be here. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank yes, you for
1: Yeah, so excited to get going because this is often a conversation that we both have with not just clients, but with everyone um, about some of the work that you're doing. So we can't wait to jump right in. But before we start, we just like to give our guests an opportunity to share any identities, privileges, or paradigms that you're comfortable with, just to give some context to our conversation.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, So some paradigms that I operate from are Uh, an anti-colonial, (laughs) anti-imperial, anti-racist, anti-diet, pro-fat, disability justice perspective that often takes into account political desirability politics, which is essentially this conversation around how actually our sexual desirability and where we fall upon the hierarchy of what is considered sexually desirable or sexually undesirable if we were to consider it a spectrum actually determines a lot of whether or not we're able to uh, structurally access things like uh, scoring a job interview or um, To have a a lifelong partner or to be accepted by family and friends or to to have like a a deep and meaningful social circle those are some frameworks and paradigms that i operate from Um, and personally i'm also because listeners have no idea unless they were to see a photo of me i am a light skin um, so that's a privilege um and and will be considered in quotes good skin also privilege um super fat non-binary bem so a mix of like butch and femme bisexual indian american who is lower caste but um my family is upper middle class um so another privilege i am documented so i have uh, papers here in the u.s uh another privilege Uh, i was born in the u.s so i have a an accent that is typically well respected when i travel i mean not so much nowadays with trump in office and <laughs> but uh but it that accent comes with privilege um so just to name a few um, i'm also able-bodied uh, so i can walk i'm ambulatory and i actually have really good health so i pretty rarely see the inside of a doctor's office throughout the year um those are just some things i can think of off the top of my head <laughs>
0: Wow, thank you so much for being so detailed in in that. (laughs) No, it's wonderful. It's because this is um, just an audio medium. It's hard to paint a picture sometimes, right? So thank you for that. Um, We just were so fascinated with the history of your work, um, how you got into what you're doing, um, what it is you do with clients or when you speak,
2: and then where all of this takes place. I would love to tell you more about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm based on the East Coast in the US, I'm based in Philadelphia, and my primary work is to work with clients. So I'm, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And in the US, uh, what that means is that I have the ability to work with my clients on an individual or a group or a couple's level. and my, the primary population that I work with um, are queer and trans folks of color who are working through multiple issues at the same time. Um, often including healing from, from sexual trauma, uh, unlearning internalized fat phobia, uh, unlearning internalized capitalism. So this like need to always be productive and efficient and uh, a difficult time resting oftentimes comes with that. Um, also healing from white supremacy and understanding their experiences at work and at home uh, through a lens of of anti-racism and white supremacy. Um, And I have a lot of, actually a lot of clients who are immigrants and that's um, a new understanding of a client population that I have this unique experience with. So I'm a child of immigrants. And while I was born here, I do have an intimate understanding of what growing up with immigrant kid guilt feels like which is this feeling like like my parents have come to the U.S. and sacrificed a lot of things in order to come here. And this understanding that I must do something with that, that the pressure to to do something monumental and what that monumental thing means is different from family to family. Um, But for my family, it looks like conformity. And so I got into this work Um, because I wanted to better understand what I myself have experienced. Uh, And I often say like being fat saved my life because I grew up as a fat kid. I was one of those fat immigrant kids who was put on non-consensual diets starting around ages like 9, 10, 11, like pre-puberty. Yeah, really young. Yeah. So my journey to fat acceptance was really about trying to find language to understand what I experienced and why it didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that I put onto Instagram. So I also do a lot of radical educating. So outside of my client work where I work with folks privately, I also do radical educating where I go out into the world and universities will bring me to places like Regina in Saskatchewan (laughs) or places like, um, uh, San Francisco or St. Louis and I tell folks about body positivity and how it's often really mainstream and forgets its really radical roots um, and how it's like this co-optation of a, of a very radical liberation movement. Um, because I'm trying to make space for myself, I'm trying to offer other folks this language that really helps us understand what it is we've experienced and, and why diet trauma and body image trauma impacts our sexuality more specifically, um, because I'm a sex therapist. So I have Mm -hmm. this like unique insight into how sexuality gets impacted when we are like forced to conform, forced to diet, uh, forced to think that our bodies are worthless because they are lower on a desirability hierarchy, for example.
0: Wow, you do such amazing (laughs) stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (sighs) I'm, I'm almost... Well, I am speechless because there's just so much to unpack there that we hear all the time in our one-on-ones with people in groups and just social colleagues and you just think you know you can name the oppressor when you're talking to people but how you dive into that work with folks I think um, yeah. you know a lot of listeners or dietitians they really just feel they don't know how to get there and mm-hmm. and it's probably because they haven't gone there themselves. I think that's a lot to do with it. But it just seems like a lot of this is still really taboo to talk about.
2: Yeah, there's so much shame around claiming fatness as an identity. I think that's why it's often so hard to mobilize politicized fat movements. What I'm thinking about uh, people living in the same city, like online, yeah, we can mobilize a movement. There's lots of folks who, Might not live in my city, but could, you know, we could fire up a Twitter storm against a new, you know, Weight Watchers campaign, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But folks in the same city, oftentimes, especially folks who are racialized or undocumented, who are also experiencing fat phobia, sometimes that falls to the bottom of the list because we don't think of embodiment as something that impacts the rest of our ability to, like, access our sexuality or communicate assertively Mm -hmm. or to advocate for ourselves in, like, a doctor's office Mm -hmm. but it does can you
1: give folks some ideas on you've kind of given a few examples already of sort of that patriarchy and the white supremacy but people that you're working with so that folks that are listening can sort of identify how would they know that they are um are are disembodied and and sort of falling into those mm. those comments about their body and not living from that internal but rather that external systemic
2: pressure. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I still find myself checking that external voice. Okay. Yeah. So this, I feel like this comes from uh, developing an intuitive internal self, often mm-hmm. a higher self, and a lot of this is inner work. So sometimes I'm working with a client who will struggle with listening to their internal self um, and to develop this like internal compass when they're often leaning on an external mandate or an external suggestion or an external influence. And so when I'm working with, especially my South Asian clients, so like my Indian, often women or um, queer non-binary folks, sometimes what it will feel like when i'm working with some of those clients is they will still be wanting to receive praise from parents by doing things that their parents have been asking them to do like uh even though they don't really want to go on that blind date with this person who they have not they don't really have much interest on going on this date with um they will go because their parents have asked Mm -hmm. And oftentimes this is like the beginning inklings of like an arranged marriage because this is kind of like arranged dating. And often what gets replicated in these environments is like um, choices kind of like subtly get taken away, um, the choice to like take your time and like choose on your own. And in the selection of the potential mate is often baked in like casteism and classism. So, the, the only answer, and often like very blatant desirability politics. So, like the kind of mate that would be pre selected for this unseen date would often be someone who meets a lot of like really conventional attractivity markers. Um, mm-hmm. So, like they're probably thin. Um, and when I think about classes and I think about how poor folks would not be chosen and how often men with like high paying jobs will be chosen. When I think about casteism, oftentimes, um, f- men who are chosen for these dates or even women do um, would be chosen from a specific caste. And what this perpetuates is this idea that it is bad to intermingle. it is um, it is considered like impure to date someone or marry someone who is a lower caste than oneself. and these perpetuate like really negative ideas about whether or not. Uh, we are worthy based on whether or not we're being obedient to this external force. So patriarchy, um, my clients often struggle with patriarchy or internalized misogyny when they have a hard time standing up to parents sometimes, or they believe that, that their own ability to make choices is not as good as their parents' ability to make choices for them. Um, they'll, they'll say like really negative self-talk that's often very critical about their career path or, um, the string of people that they've dated, or even they'll be critical about their experiences of sexual trauma, and they'll use a lot of self-blaming language um, that sounds often like someone else speaking in the room. Wow,
0: that, it's so, um, there's so much to unpack, I think, in this whole area that um, it, it's it's almost, overwhelming from my brain because having not like worked in this area, but I find as dietitians, um, myself and Corey, that we get a lot of this kind of unwell because sex comes up in sessions because of the body checking and the Mm -hmm. lack of embodiment and um, how sex can become performative. Um, in that sense, and I guess just because of my own privilege of, you know, being a white um, um, individual I, I who hasn't gone through some of that, um, like arranged dating and everything that didn't kind of when I was, when sex comes up, it hadn't been a thing that I had personally kind of thought of, I guess. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that with me and and giving me more things to learn. Um but I guess when um, us as dietitians are talking um, and sex comes up, I was wondering if you could kind of help us understand how sex might play a deeper role in food and bodies than what we might even be aware of.
2: Oh, I love this question because, especially for folks living in North America, which is um, us three <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> and any of your listeners who are in North America, um, this is such a great question because oftentimes when we look and think about Christian colonialism, actually the many ways that sex is pathologized and deemed impure is identical and exists in parallel to the way that food has been yeah. aligned and is called like impure, right? Oh my goodness. And so yeah. right, we often hear this rhetoric, and this exists in many religions, right? I don't mean to pick on Christianity, but when, when talking about like North America context, mm-hmm. well, we're talking about Christianity. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and in it, it often tells us, this Christian colonialism tries to convince us that if we abstain from sex, we can attain moral purity the same way that if we abstain from fattening food, we can also attain moral purity. Yeah. So when I'm working with folks who are sometimes really early on in their unlearning of internalized fat phobia or like giving up of diet culture, we have to talk about reclaiming pleasure. And mm-hmm. I do not ever limit it just to thinking about food pleasure. We have to talk about sexual pleasure too. Because if a client is struggling to give themselves food pleasure, I I like can guarantee that it's happening somewhere else within the system uh if it, and if it's not sexual pleasure then it's uh the, the freedom to rest or like the freedom to ask for space in their family or the freedom to say no in a, in a workspace um the freedom to just have space for oneself
0: yeah that wow it, it's so true i think as dietitians we tend to focus on the food but In reflecting on just even recent clients I've worked with, I can see that pleasure elsewhere um, being denied or being, you know, that if I deny myself this, I shall be pure kind of concept.
2: And it's a helpful reframe for clients because what's really great about politicizing the same thing that we would say without adding the word Christian colonialism to it is that When we when we're able to name the boogeyman as colonialism, it's easier to be like, oh, well, I don't want to follow that or like, Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) I don't want to oppress myself. I don't want to be complicit in my own self betrayal. Uh, I don't want to align with a framework that actively oppresses me and people who who don't look like me, people who are more, more marginalized than me. And it helps us to kind of create a a black and white thinking that works well for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find,
0: oh, oh, sorry, I was going to say, do you find clients are almost shocked when you start to present this idea to them?
2: Well, I will say, unfortunately, no, because most Mm -hmm. of my clients are looking for that kind of context. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes my clients will seek me out because they're looking for politicized therapy because they're already politicized people. Yeah. So I'm often working with activists or organizers, like grassroots organizers. I'm often working with folks who are lacking the kind of therapist who sees the worldview from theirs.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so uh, it's actually, there's a, it seems to be a huge market for folks who can offer a politicized context to understanding what they've internalized. It's almost like a new religion, it feels like. Ooh, right yeah. yeah i love it <laughs> yeah so much
0: like if there was video right now you would just see my
2: face like jog, i wish that there jog. was I, and i'm like
0: just keep talking i need to learn more <laughs> it's kind of I <laughs> Okay, I had, <laughs> I
1: had a question about pleasure because this is such an interesting conversation because depending on who you're working with and their lived experience. Pleasure can mean different things. It can be scary. It can be foreign. It can be threatening. So I would just love to know, and this is a hard question to answer because it's probably, again, the context of the client you're working with. But when you ask someone, you know, what do you enjoy doing? That's obviously like the tip of the iceberg of pleasure. And most people can't even answer that question Mm. because they're so disembodied. So you know, obviously, that's not a question that you start with. There's obviously that unpacking of all the other political side of things like you were talking about. Um, So for someone who's working with food with a client, um, are there things that you could say to sort of look for, watch out for, sift through, um, so that when you get to that intuitive conversation around food and what you enjoy doing or, or it's moving your body. Um, what are some things to watch out for in those conversations that might sort of stop one from really connecting with
2: that pleasure? Oof. Uh, so trauma is a big one um, because oftentimes when I'm working with folks who've experienced trauma, uh, sometimes there is that idea that, that pleasure is like scary. Right. Or possibly even dangerous because what's happened is that there's often a narrative of self-blame so a client that I'm working with who has experienced sexual trauma and has a hard time in giving themselves like space to rest mm-hmm. um, time to do nothing um, maybe is exploring with self-pleasure around masturbation maybe is exploring around food cravings and giving themselves what they want when they want um with uh, in, a, in abundance when i'm working with someone who feels afraid with that much freedom um then i have to ask like where is their trauma where is it at play here okay. uh, oftentimes these are the clients who are struggling with uh, sometimes like psychological and emotional abuse So a new framework that I've been using that's been uh, really helpful with my immigrant clients, especially um, my immigrant kid clients. So like usually adult children, adult adolescents Hmm. is the framework of emotional immaturity. And there's a great book that I've been offering a lot of my clients. That's really been getting some rave reviews. It's a short read, maybe 150 pages and it's titled something like, um, adult children healing from emotionally immature parents. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> the title in and of itself Packs is, a punch. Yeah. It packs a punch. Yeah, it sure does. It says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a great framework because it allows us to be able to understand the ways that emotional neglect or rejection, so like the lack of something, mm. how that can actually be considered emotionally harmful and traumatic um, without really ascribing the label of abuse onto a parent, which can often feel really difficult to do. Right. And oftentimes I'm finding that a lot of my clients um, who struggle with self-advocacy, people pleasing, codependency, are often uh, in what can look like recovery from um, growing up with emotionally immature parents. Wow, that, (laughs)
1: that. (laughs) you know, even just asking that question, I had no idea where you're going to go with that, but (laughs) yeah. That you didn't I so didn't much. either I have
2: to be honest <laughs> I was like I don't know who was a good question
1: <laughs> no because it's I think you know the the world of dietetics has so much of what we've talked about that has shaped the profession
2: mm. and
1: you know talking about some of these things you can almost feel it as you're saying words the the shakiness and the fear and so I just find it so ironic that the more you get into this field, the more questions you have, and the more you don't know. <laughs> yeah, and and I think this is why Lori and I wanted to talk to folks like you, was because we have these questions, and you know, some may think that we've been in this profession for so long, but you you said earlier too that we're always unpacking because there's just so always. much to learn.
2: Uh-huh. I think that if we're not approaching our work with that kind of humility, then we are admitting that we've, we're have we done growing and we're not yeah. actually in, interested in our own self-development because that never ends. Right. <laughs> no, it's no,
1: that it's... perfectionism too. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we don't, as dietitians, we don't get much education on the intersections of gender or sizeism mm-hmm. and race and we don't talk about the body in the context of anything other than the nutrients it needs mm-hmm. um, and one thing i've learned just with growing in my profession is the body is so much more than that mm-hmm. um how do you think we as dietitians and again i'm sorry i keep bringing it back to dietitians or it's just i'm very selfish right now and like teach me um can how can we explore this area with our clients in a way that um i mean obviously we do need to do our own work but in a way that is helpful for our clients when we are having those conversations um I, both Corey and I are very non-diet as well, and so we're not having we're having those conversations of how how do I nourish my body in a way that is not diet, but I also want to really include the intersections of gender and sizeism and race uh, and, and all the
2: other things. I, I know mean, that's big. I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's well, it's huge for sure, but. Yeah. <laughs> I think nowadays, like when I, and I'll I'll use a personal example, like I have a wonderful anti-diet dietitian who's based here in philadelphia diana marlin and she just went on maternity leave and i hope she's doing great if she's listening to this podcast love you, mm-hmm. Diana. Mm-hmm. and <laughs> when she was going on maternity leave it was really important for me to ask her uh, for a couple of referrals for anti-diet dietitians and then when i did i sent an email to each of the three that she sent me introducing myself because before i'm going to refer a client of mine like Someone who I care about and love and am treating like a precious, fragile baby, Um, I want to be sure that someone who I really care about is going to be taken well care of. So when I introduce myself to these dietitians, I'm often asking, you know, where is their uh, race competence? Where is their, so do they understand, like, um, you know, don't ask someone what accent they are walking in the room with, if you can identify that as an accent that's not based in North America um, and why it's important not to ask that. Or, um, you know, don't ask them to explain, or, or a better one, don't uh, don't blame um, cultural or family specific culture differences on something that's negative, a negative thing like abuse or a negative thing like uh, harm or trauma so saying something like, oh, do you think that that was more acceptable in your family because of your culture? Mm. Uh, This is a big Mm. no-no. So race, race literacy, Um, I'm also thinking about queer and trans literacy. So uh, does the dietitian have dexterity around pronouns? So if my client comes to you and says, I only use they, them pronouns, is the dietitian going to be you know, is the dietitian going to catch themselves if they use the wrong pronoun? Is the dietitian going to understand that they might need to practice outside of of working with the client um, in in trying to use the the correct pronoun? Um, Is the dietitian going to understand dead naming and that any insurance documents that have the person's government name should not ever be used with the client? Um, So so things like that, Um, also thinking about sexual orientation and, Um, and how we can affirm clients by not uh, pathologizing hypersexuality or asexuality. Mm -hmm. So if a client is saying, I just don't experience sexual attraction, I don't experience the desire to be with someone else sexually, and I'm normal. It's not because I've experienced trauma. It's not because I'm like um, emotionally stunted. It's it's just it repulses me and I don't want to do it. I've never wanted to do it. I have no desire. Uh, so affirming that that can be normal and totally okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often will be asking clients, um, potential dietitians that I refer folks to, uh, those types of questions to be able to vet in advance whether or not I can say that someone actually is like a safe space to go to for anti diet dietitian services.
1: Wow, that that's right. <laughs> it's so amazing because yeah. it's so easy to say, "Hey, do you know someone I can refer to?" But when you have that context of the the breadth of your work and the deep conversations you have, that you do need to ask those questions and find out where where might these people be going and who are they talking to. So, yeah. that has given me some inspiration of questions to ask. Uh, the next time I'm reaching out to colleagues. So thank you.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, And it also just shows how much you um, care about your client's wellness. Um, It's just not in your space that you're seeing them or working with them. It's in all their spaces. And that's just so beautiful.
2: Oh, thank you. I Um, love them a lot. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: It's (laughs) It, you can you can tell the passion you have when you speak. It's so it's so beautiful. Um, the one um, dead naming is something that I think is coming up a little bit more. Um, we don't hear that term a lot in Canada. At least I haven't. I, I know what it is, but I was just in case our listeners aren't aware. I think it's a really good. Um, uh, yeah you're thing right. to become aware of so would you mind just giving yeah
2: up? so dead naming is a term that is used especially with trans folks so or gender non-conforming folks when we use their government name so that us, the name assigned to them maybe usually at birth instead of the name that they have told us that they would like us to use
0: mm-hmm
2: Mm -hmm. Sometimes this often is in a different gender, so the dead name might be a different gender than the one that the person is currently presenting, or it might be gendered, as opposed to the unisex name that someone's using now.
0: Yeah, and I think when we get, you know, medical referrals or we see government forms or insurance forms, that's where I think some people can get very, um, I don't want to use the word confused, but not that you need to ask your clients which yes (laughs) yes
2: and so uh, the way I would handle it is if I'm sitting in with a client the first time we meet and I notice that hey your government form has a different name than the form that you did on our intake so I would uh, clarify so all and I would let them know I'm under I understand that your government uh, forms have a different name and for our purposes for like purposes for insurance submission, I will make sure that your government name is on those forms. And I will make sure that I do not ever use that name when talking to you or about you. And mm-hmm. I will use the name that you have told me about. And then I'll say, is that okay with you? Or is there another way that you'd like me to approach that? And this can be helpful, especially if I'm working with a client who still is in contact with family that is dead naming. Um, oh, yeah. And So I'll identify that that will be a place that I might need to intervene as as the clinician so like having a conversation with the family member and reminding them why dead naming is actually uh, trans antagonistic and harmful and is considered violent
1: wow it's wonderful uh, yeah that just feels so new to me because um i think again it's that sort of wiring that we're all trained to look at things finite it is or it isn't, or once you're this way, you're this way forever. And <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, there's just so many ways that that doesn't work. And just really knowing your client individually, um, you seem yeah. like you just have such a beautiful way of doing that and oh. so inspiring. So, oh, thank, thank you, you for, yeah, for I feel like this is, the,
2: this is the move we're heading towards. This, like, yeah, when folks talk about the opposite of rape culture is consent culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree, and so when we move towards consent culture, what it means is having uh, often a lot more fluidity and yeah. and often like p- uh, pivoting when mm-hmm. you know consent changes um, pretty quickly. And so yeah, with it comes with some practice. I've it's taken me a lot of years to get pronouns right. Like I've definitely um, like five years. I'm like good at, at they them zezer. Um, or just using someone's name as pronouns, but it took me, I said five years, one, two, three, four, five. (laughs) (laughs) And you're in this, right? And you're working on it, right? And it's still five years. Yeah. I myself am exploring gender myself. I'm exploring sexuality myself. So oftentimes I'm working with clients who are like, I think I'm experiencing gender expansiveness. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Come over here. Let's sit and talk about it. Um, or the struggle with, you know, I'm bisexual or pansexual or polysexual, and I'm worried I'm not queer enough. And I'm like, yeah, pull up a chair. Let's talk about it. And I'm struggling with it too. And often I don't do that much self-disclosure, but, <laughs> yeah. um, it's really helpful to be doing our own work in parallel process mm-hmm. with our clients. Cause it gives us so much more empathy for what they're struggling with. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this
1: has been so amazing. Girl, it's right. So if you're amazing. Ask something else. <laughs> no, no. Just, I was just like, ah. <laughs> I am so mind blown here, and my head is pounding from a cold, and like you've just opened my sinuses. So
2: have I cured your cold? <laughs> I'm going to write that on my website. So <laughs> you should.
1: You I will write, write that and this, everything else. <laughs> yeah, I will write that for you. Um, but we we just love asking folks what is currently nourishing you that's sort of mm. our way of just really connecting and knowing um, Oof. how how you do that for you
2: oh some things that are really nourishing me right now are making sure that my calendar reflects what is important to me so making sure that i i have time to connect with my family and which is like my my siblings and my cousins and Um, And friends, my my deep, deep friendships that I have and making sure that they are reflected in my calendar and I make time for them. Um, Setting boundaries with my family, especially my parents right now. I'm struggling and I'm finally coming to terms with all of this like uh, repressed and unexpressed rage that I've been carrying since childhood. And so it's um, having direct communication, setting boundaries with my parents has been really, really nourishing me in the last couple of weeks. And um, the last thing that I'll add is uh, having hobbies. So, one thing that um, I do is I, I work actually too much. And that's the only downside of being self employed is that mm-hmm. you just can work all the time and, like, mm-hmm. just not really realize it. <laughs> and yep. um, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going to take a clay class. I'm going to say it affin- affirmatively. I'm taking a clay class in the spring. I'm going to learn how to throw clay on a wheel and I'm going to have a hobby and I'm going to learn how to not be good at something and be okay with that. Just do it for the fun of it. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs>
0: very, very cool. Thank you so much for your time today. This, I, again, I've been sitting here with the hugest smile and like <laughs> my, the whole time. Um, I, Corey can attest to this. I am not a touchy feely person, but I want to hug you. <laughs> like, oh, I don't totally. <laughs> You're um, just so lovely and wonderful. Um, is there anywhere people can connect with you online, follow your work?
2: Yeah, totally. Like to if, if folks are interested in that political education work I mentioned, uh, they can follow me on Instagram at the fat sex therapist. You will have to spell the whole thing out because I'm being shadow banned. So you'll okay. literally have to spell the whole, every letter to, to find my profile. <laughs> oh, no. And you can always reach me by email. If you or someone you love is based in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. you can reach me on my website at SonaliR.com.
0: Well, Sonali, it's been so wonderful talking to you today. I know Corey and I are just in love with this. and. <laughs> Um, editing will be a pleasure. So again,
2: thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Thank you for being part of our nourish circle today. We hope you join us next time.
2: Thank you for listening
0: to today's episode of the nourish circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.